0: Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Today's guest is Livia Sarah. Livia is a holistic life coach and author who has set out to bridge the gap between neurodiversity and eating disorders. For almost a decade, Livia went in and out of treatment and was labeled too complex, treatment-resistant, manipulative, and was told that she would have to manage her eating disorder for the rest of her life. It wasn't until she was 20 years old that she discovered she was autistic and her entire life and the difficulty that she had with traditional eating disorder treatment finally made sense. Since then, Livia's mission has been to break the stigma around mental health and empower neurodivergent individuals to fully recover from disordered eating. In this episode, Livia shares examples of autistic traits that could be viewed as eating disorder behaviors, as well as tips for recovery if you are autistic. Autism is a topic that needs to be talked about more in the eating disorder space, and I'm truly grateful to have Livia join me on this week's episode of the show. Enjoy!
1: Hey, Liv. How are you today? I'm good. I'm super excited to be here. I'm so how glad you're
0: here, too. I'm doing great. How's your November going so far?
1: It is. It's going great. Yeah, my birthday is actually coming up in little less than two weeks now, and my mom's coming to visit from Europe. So I love November because of fall and the leaves, and it's been great weather too. So yeah, how's your November been going? It's been
0: very nice so far. It feels like it's a heat wave over here. Oh,
1: yeah. Wait, because where are you based? I'm based in Connecticut right now. Are you in Boston? Yeah, I'm in Boston. So we're pretty close. It was really hot like two days ago, I feel like.
0: Yeah, Um, I was like, is this summertime? What's going
1: on? Global warming.
0: (laughs) (laughs) I know. A little scary, but anyway, so we're both uh, enduring a low key heat wave Mm -hmm. in November. (laughs) What are you doing for your birthday?
1: So, my mom is coming, but she actually has to leave like two days before my birthday because it's like very coincidental. She's here for like a work trip. But yeah, anyways, so we're going to just celebrate my birthday. A little early, my uncle actually, who lives in North Carolina, is also flying into Boston. So we're probably just going to, you know, chill out, go out to dinner, maybe see a movie. My mom has like a a singing gig and she's actually going to sing this song that she wrote for me when I was struggling with my eating disorder called One Foot in Front of the Other. So yeah, so we're just going to celebrate early. And then on my birthday itself, just going to go to a bakery by myself, big piece of cake and enjoy it with movies and netflix <laughs> and yeah just just my introverted self like that's what i'd love to do
0: well, that sounds like a lovely birthday between <laughs> having your mom sing you a song that she wrote for you to enjoying a piece of cake and watching netflix so
1: i'm yes. excited <laughs> thank you
0: okay so i just want to let you know Liv, when you and I decided to have you on the podcast, I was so excited because we have so many people who have reached out to me about the link between autism and eating disorders. Mm -hmm. And I can't wait to dive into this topic with you today because there's not much out there on that subject. And I know I have clients even who have autism and eating disorders who are learning to recover while being autistic, which is so difficult and it looks sometimes pretty different than your quote typical recovery process.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. No, everything you just said, I mean, with the quotes to the link between autism and eating disorders, like ever since I kind of really shifted into just deepening my knowledge about this topic after, of course, coming through my own, making my own message I just started reading more about it learning more about it advocating more about it and like the deeper I went into this topic like the more and more clear it's becoming to me how prevalent this this link really is and the fact that there's so little information out there about this link is honestly just truly shocking to me. And I think it's a main reason why treatment fails so, so many individuals, because I personally believe that a lot of people are just going undiagnosed and are missing this very critical aspect of recovery. Even, yeah, one of my clients actually, she started my 12-week coaching program, never heard of autism before, and we started working together. And I just noticed A lot of myself in her and at one point i mentioned it to her parents and her parents just emailed me just last night actually that they got her an official autism diagnosis (laughs) and ever since like we have been really looking at her recovery from a different lens, from a different perspective, it's been insane how much progress she's made, not only like with regards to recovery, but just in how she navigates school, how she navigates life, how she communicates with her family, like the different perspective, that different lens. I call it the autistic lens. I have a chapter in my book on this. It opens your world up in a way that like, I always say like before, if everything seemed foggy and unclear before, it's like you have glasses that now everything is sharpened and in focus. Like that's what label can do for someone who is autistic. So very excited yeah. for this episode. Yeah. yeah, so
0: like on that note, I've been hearing more about this over the past year where so many adult yes. women specifically have just gone under the radar for a lot of their lifetime. Mm-hmm. out the diagnosis. And I know you lived a big portion of your lifetime undiagnosed. So what was it like for you as a child, not knowing you were an autistic person? And when did you discover that you were?
1: Yeah, so that's a great question. And I mean, I'm going to try my darndest to not go too deep into this because I wrote an entire book on this topic. But basically, I'd say Like I always knew growing up as a child, like from my youngest years, that I didn't fit in, you know. But at the same time, I knew I was different and I I wasn't like many of the other girls, but I really wanted to be normal. I wanted to be like them because I was afraid that if I wasn't, you know, like what kind of identity do you have? You know, every kid wants to fit in with the crowd. That's why kids do crazy things, right? So I really learned to mask and to pretend to be someone that I wasn't. And I had kind of conditioned myself to behave in a way that I thought society expected me to behave. And this actually caused me to suppress my true authentic identity because I kind of learned from, you know, growing up in that conditioning and the cues you get from society, I learned that Being my authentic self was weird and was not accepted and people wouldn't talk to you and people wouldn't be friends with you if you were yourself. So I often pretended to, you know, enjoy the things that I thought people expected me to enjoy. So if my quote unquote friends were playing with Barbie dolls, I'd be like, oh my gosh, they're so wonderful. Even though I was like, I couldn't care less about your Barbie dolls. But if I said that, well, then I wouldn't have any friends, right? I pretended to be interested in gossip and would just like sit there and listen. Well, I was just like, okay, this is just horrible that you guys are talking about this. But I knew that after experience of speaking up and saying, you can't say that about that girl. They'd say, are you serious, Livia? Like, you're either going to be like part of the group or you're not. And I didn't want to be excluded, right? So in reality, I just wanted to play soccer outside with the boys. And I was fascinated. I've always loved school and I've loved learning. I mean, that's why I'm such a research nerd at this point. But I mean, that was weird. That made me a nerd. And, you know, there's a lot of stigma around that, too. So I'd say that was what it was like for me growing up as a kid was just feeling like I couldn't be myself and really kind of just, yeah, putting on this mask of who I thought I had to be so that people would like me and that people would include me. That's my answer to that.
0: (laughs) Thank you. So that's really interesting. And I've heard about masking, you know, in my own research with autism. And well, it is my understanding that people who are masking, they're masking like as in doing things that aren't authentic to them. But are there also autistic behaviors that people mask? For instance, like not looking into someone's eyes when they talk or like fidgeting or moving certain ways like physical symptoms that are masked as well in some cases I know it's all on Um, spectrum.
1: yeah I'd say what you said about like the eye contact thing I personally have a very very hard time making eye contact because for me the best way to explain it like explain the experience is like if I am forcing myself to look into someone's eyes while I'm speaking with them I'm so so focused on How anxious and nervous it's making me to look into their eyes. Like, I'm not engaged in the conversation because I won't even hear what they're saying because I'm so focused on the fact that I need to look into their eyes. But it just, I don't know why, but it just makes me so, so, so uncomfortable. But to answer your question with regards to masking, like, I know what it feels like to force yourself to make eye contact because I still often find myself doing that with neurotypical people, is because, you know, When you look up, like, signs of, like, healthy relationships and all these things, it's like, if someone doesn't make eye contact, that's a major red flag, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah, so, like, you're like, oh, well, I don't want this person to think I don't like them, you know? Like, I want them to think that they're interested in me and I want them to be my friend, so I'll just... Pretend that eye contact isn't hard. But yeah, so I think that's definitely a form of masking is like forcing yourself to make eye contact if it's uncomfortable. And then with like the fidgeting and stuff in like the autistic world, it's called like stimming and it stands for like self stimulatory behaviors. I honestly think it's a really strange term because I'm like, every single human has self stimulatory behaviors. <laughs> like if you are too cold, you'll put on a sweater because that's self stimulatory and it makes you feel better. <laughs> right. Or like, yeah just okay I'm not even going to go on a tangent here but yeah it's called stimming and for some people it's like more quote-unquote extreme than other people like sometimes you have like the stereotypical like hand flapping is a form of stimming but for me I never feel and I think this is often where like autistic imposter syndrome can pop in a lot of times is that you don't like fit the mold of what you've read or you think autism is so like I personally don't have any of these like stereotypical stimming behaviors such as like rocking, hand flapping, twitching or like tapping. Like I don't do any of that, but like I bite my nails or like I will twirl my hair. It's stuff that like is so, so nuanced and like many typical people do it as well, like when they're nervous, that it can be kind of harder to see. But I think for people that do have like more obvious stimming behaviors, like for them to like suppress those behaviors that would definitely be a form of masking, probably because they've been conditioned by society. Like, what the heck are you doing? Why are you flopping your hands like that? You're weird. So they're like, okay, like new data point in my brain. Do not do that in public because people think I'm weird. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Yeah. That's one thing I've just been pretty fascinated with when I've just been learning about autism, especially how it impacts those with autism and how it, Forces individuals to kind of stop being their authentic selves. Like this, the enculturation that will go through forces them not to be like their natural self. But on that note, how did autism influence the development of your eating disorder?
1: Yeah. So again, going to try my best not to go too deep into this because my entire book is <laughs> is on this topic. But I would say wow like honestly where do I even start well I think kind of going off of my story of what it was like growing up as an autistic child I think it starts with yeah not feeling like you're allowed to be who you truly are and this goes hand in hand with anxiety and I think as a young kid when you are you know learning who you are and you're trying to discover yourself but at the same time trying to hide yourself and trying to be someone you're not, and you're super anxious, this puts your body into like this fight or flight mode, right? And autistic people, as well as individuals who are genetically predisposed for eating disorders, and I've done research on anorexia specifically, so I'm not sure what the data is for other kinds of eating disorders, but I do know that people who are autistic as well as those with eating disorders tend to struggle with interoception. And interoception is known as like the eighth sense. Because we're familiar with the five senses, right? But there's also three other lesser known senses. So there's proprioception, the vestibular sense, and there's interoception. And interoception is responsible for your body's inner cue. So it tells you whether you're hungry, whether you're thirsty, if you are hurting, if you have a stomach ache, if you have to go to the bathroom, you know? But for people on the spectrum, as well as those with eating disorders, there tends to be a lack of interoceptive awareness, meaning we are much more out of touch with our inner cues. So I remember for me as a kid, when I was around 11, I just remember not being hungry at all. And this actually ties directly into another Trait, which is literal thinking that I believe contributed massively to the development of my eating disorder at that age specifically and that is when I was 11 I was in fifth grade we first started learning about nutrition and health in school and you have all these like fitness tests that you have to do like the beep test you have to run and yeah you have to like push-ups and all this stuff and I just remember learning in in health class, like you hear all these blanket statements, right? Like sugar is bad for you. If you are eating cookies, they are unhealthy. You run the risk of diabetes and obesity and all these fat phobic labels. And if you want to be healthy and if you want to, you have to exercise for X minutes per day, right? Like all these blanket statements around health. And as someone who tends to take things very literally and is very detail oriented and tends to get obsessed very quickly, I was like, oh my gosh, like everything I'm doing I'm, I'm living wrong right like I'm living bad I'm living unhealthy so I like cut out all what I thought was bad for my diet I ate only like the quote-unquote good foods on back when we still had the food pyramid I don't know if you remember like how small that like section was for like sugar and oil I was <laughs> like well if it's so small like I might as well just cut it out right I played a lot of sports growing up, but I didn't have soccer practice or gymnastics every day. So on the days that I didn't have practice, I would go running and I would do extra exercises. And this was also linked to this like beep test and this testing of physical fitness in gym class, because I was like, I need to be the best. I need to prove to them how athletic I am. So I like picked up running and I would just run like go running with my parents like as a freaking 11 year old little girl and like there would be people like walking their dogs like praising me like wow your daughter she's so disciplined you know and this is I think what's really really dangerous in our society is they were basically praising the development of an eating disorder of course they didn't know but I think that is often the danger of society is that many of these behaviors are socially acceptable to a certain extent and people only start to quote unquote worry when those physical ailments or physical manifestations and again that ties back to the whole most people with eating disorders are not in smaller bodies <laughs> but I definitely think that like the combination of not having hunger cues oh yeah and because that was another thing that we learned in class like if you're not hungry like don't eat like they literally told me that so I was like oh if I'm not hungry like then there's no reason to eat. So basically, I think that's kind of what sparked my restriction. And that in turn sparked my eating disorder genetics to just fire, which sparked the whole adapted to flea famine hypothesis, which I don't know if you're familiar with that theory. But I do have a whole seven-part series on that on my website, if anyone's interested. I have a whole seven-part series explaining the adapted to flea famine hypothesis. Oh, yeah. And another thing is like I've always been very small in terms of like, thin privilege, but also just like a very small human. Like I was born two weeks late and I was like the weight of like a preemie baby. So I was always on the lowest growth curve. So as soon as I just didn't cut out sugar and I cut out the oils and I cut out the daily cookies I was eating, I lost just a few pounds, but that was enough to send me off the growth chart and make the doctors really, really worried. But at this point, I think it was too late because I sparked that energy deficit. And I think, yeah, when you spark the energy deficit and you spark the eating disorder genetics, that just spirals into obsession, rigidity, routines not being able to go out to eat. A lot of autistic traits intertwined with that. But yeah, again, I don't want to go too deep into this because we could spend a whole episode talking about this and I explain everything in my book as well. (laughs) So I'm I'm going to halt myself.
0: (laughs) Okay. Well, you've given us a great overview of kind of your story and how things culminated into an eating disorder. And as you bring that up, I'm really curious if you could actually share examples Specifically, you've already touched on a few, but of autistic traits that could be viewed as eating disorder behaviors. Cause I yeah. think this will help so many people who might be wondering Do I have autism? Am I on the spectrum? Is my eating disorder sort of a product of my autism? Perhaps, you know, I think there's a lot that could be learned here. Are you in eating disorder recovery and feel overwhelmed by the chaos and pressure around food and family that the holiday season brings? Join me and the Recovery Collective for the Winter Reset, a free healing experience from December 1st to the 31st, designed to reconnect you to peace and rest during the holiday season. Sign up using the link in the show notes to access a free Winter Reset guidebook, a calendar of live events, and access to our Winter Reset Facebook group. Let's get comfy and cozy together
1: and focus on recovery this December. Absolutely. And just before I dive into that, I actually do want to clarify something because I often hear the terms do I have autism or like I am autistic like interchangeably and I actually when I first discovered I'm autistic I thought they meant the exact same thing I have autism I am autistic doesn't matter but actually a lot of people who are autistic actually prefer to say like I am an autistic person rather than having them refer to as having autism. And that's because autism is part of our inherent identity. I always say it's not like a handbag we can just toss on the couch when we don't <laughs> feel like being like having it with us. And I think this distinguishment, how do you say that? Distinction. Distinction. Oh my gosh. <laughs> my brain is really, really important to make when it comes to autism or when it comes to eating disorders. Cause the reason initially why I said I have autism is because I had learned that it is better to say I have or I have had an eating disorder rather than I am anorexic or I am disordered. Mm -hmm. Because when you're doing that, you're tying it to identity, making it so that it's like impossible to let go of. And when I said I have an eating disorder, meaning I can also toss it on the couch at some point when I don't want it anymore and I can put it in a handbag. Of course not. But like just making that distinction between the identity first versus person first language was really important with regard to letting go of my eating disorder. But then when it came to autism, my very first YouTube video about the topic is called, it's still out there, is how I found out I have autism. And then actually someone pointed out to me how most autistic people prefer They say I am autistic just because, like I said, it is a part of my inherent identity and I can't get rid of it like an eating disorder, but I don't want to get rid of it either. I I see it as a gift now. All of my experiences, everything I do, everything I say, everything I see is through an autistic perspective. So, yeah, I just did want to clarify that because, yeah, I have heard you say quite a bit having autism. So, I just want to clarify for the listeners who are autistic or who are on the spectrum that there's awareness around that. I feel like.
0: Yeah, well, um, thank you so much because I am very aware of the person first language with eating disorders. Yes, so yeah. I was thinking it was similar, but it makes a lot of sense because autism is your identity. Yeah. So you wouldn't want to just toss it aside and you want to keep it with you because it makes you who you are. So thank you for clarifying that. And yeah. I guess bringing it back to that question about examples of autistic traits that might be confused as eating disorder behaviors. I'd love if we could dive into that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. And I honestly think this is like it weaves in perfectly to what I just said, because I think that is the very problem with traditional approaches to eating disorder treatment is that they do treat the autism. Well, they try to attack the autistic traits and try and say like you can't feel this way you can't do this you can't have these preferences so for me a huge one and I think this is across the board for really every autistic individual that has comorbid eating disorder is we attach numbers to parts of our life this of course immediately off the top of my head I'm like calorie counting steps taken you know amounts of time exercised only eating at certain times not eating before certain times just like really attaching numbers to Everything. And I think this is one of those behaviors that there's definitely a nuance between like the eating disorder and autism because a lot of autistic people tend to attach numbers to just things in their life that are completely unrelated to food and exercise. Like for me personally, like when I'm brushing my teeth, like I will never brush my teeth for like less than a minimum amount of seconds or when I'm like folding my laundry, like I will count how many shirts I'm folding and count how many underwear I'm putting like in the drawer or whatever. So, I mean, if you think about it, of course, that's going to manifest into food and exercise. And I think this is why it can be so dangerous in traditional treatment for autistic individuals when they say, well, if you want to fully recover from your eating disorder, you have to completely let go of any attachment when it comes to numbers and food and exercise. But by doing this, you're basically trying to say you're not allowed to have that autistic. And then when you feel invalidated as an autistic person, you cling to the very thing that, you feel validated by, which is your eating disorder, which makes everything worse. So with that said, I do think it's very important to, and I actually have a free audio training about this on my website, about how I think the key for autistic people in recovery from the eating disorder to fully recover from their eating disorder is rather than seeing you being autistic as a disadvantage or some kind of blockade that's going to make everything harder, you have to shift that mindset to how can I use these autistic traits to my advantage in recovery? Like, how can I use them as strengths? And with counting and numbers, for example, like, there's this huge misconception, like, oh, if you count calories, it is 100% coming from the eating disorder. But actually, like, that's only because probably you want to count calories to make sure you don't go over whatever you've allotted yourself the amount of calories to have. But what if we shifted that to, I know that when I'm autistic and I really prefer to do things when I can attach numbers to them, how about I assign myself a minimum amount of calories that I need to eat? Because this actually can make it easier for that autistic person to eat. And if that person needs to be gaining weight, I mean, like, do whatever you need to do to make it easier. Like, recovery is hard enough. Why would you make it even harder by saying, oh, you can't do this thing? That could potentially be very, very helpful. And this is why I think there does need to be so much more awareness when it comes to autism and eating disorders and really looking at the individual and saying, could there be autism underneath this? Because if you are not looking at that, if you are not taking that factor into account, you could be doing more harm than good, which was just my experience being tossed in and out of the treatment system for over seven years. Years and at one point, just being labeled as too complex, you're just gonna have to accept the fact that you're gonna have to manage this illness forever because you're manipulative and you're rebellious. And I mean, so many labels have been placed on me over the years, but I mean, now that I'm able to look back at it through this autistic lens, I'm like, well, of course, I was manipulative and rebellious. Like, you were telling me that I wasn't allowed to be who I am. So, of course, I was gonna rebel and do exactly. The opposite of what you told me to do just to show you that you can't tell me what to do <laughs> so yeah so with that i know you said like what are some more autistic traits that could be viewed as ed behavior so i just mentioned like attachment to numbers i think another one is the aspect of predictability and difficulty with like unforeseen circumstances as autistic person because i can obviously only ever speak from my personal experience i always need to know everything ahead of time i like have things planned out i want to know what's coming i mean i don't know if you remember but before you sent me the questions for the podcast i was like meg can you send me the questions please like i need to know what's coming (laughs) um (laughs) yeah so i think that's another huge one is factoring in that predictability because autistic people have really hard time adapting to circumstances that are unknown and i think this is because as autistic people we have a really hard time trusting our external environment and just trusting the world because the world is so unpredictable. You know, typical people are always changing everything. They're so spontaneous, you know, nothing is ever the same. So we've kind of gained gained this sense of like distrust in our environment. And I would say the opposite of anxiety isn't calm, it's trust. And I think that's why for autistic people, I mean, anxiety is like the number one comorbidity is because we don't trust anything. But we do trust our rituals and our routines and all the structure we've built into our life because we can control that. And again, this cycles back to why I think eating disorders are so common among autistic individuals, because I'm like, what's something everyone can easily control every single day? What you eat and how you move. I mean, it's basically the easiest thing you can control. So I'm like, of course, so many autistic people are developing eating disorders. But Anyways, that aside, that need for predictability, I remember in treatment myself, this was one of those traits that was like, nope, no predictability, flexibility, spontaneity. That's a huge, very important part of recovery. So I remember every Friday we had like restaurant outing and we would have to go to a restaurant. We wouldn't know what the restaurant was until we were about to walk into the restaurant. And I just remember every single week that I would just have debilitating anxiety about what this restaurant was going to be. And I mean, I talked to my therapist about it and they'd say, yeah, that's because you're eating disorder wants to control the situation. But I'm like, no, like, because and this is, again, what I said about like how you can, I think, a way to use this traits of wanting to know things in advance with regards to like the restaurant example, how you could use it to your advantage if it is an autistic trait, because of course the person does have to be autistic. Because <laughs> I think anyone with an eating disorder can now go and say, Hmm, well I can follow all these tips that Livia has because I could just say I'm autistic, but of course it's not always the case. But I think like with regards to like the planning the menu, I mean I'm sure that anyone with an eating disorder would, would always look up the menu beforehand to plan and make sure they had the salad or the healthy option and knowing that they'd say, oh, dressing on the side, please, you know, all the things. But I think in this case, for an autistic person, if you really need that predictability and if you need to know things beforehand, you can use it to your advantage because you can say, oh, I'm actually going to look at the menu so that I can reduce my anxiety, which will make it easier to eat. And I can use this as an opportunity to actually plan like a fear food or plan a fear meal. And because I know that's coming, because I know what I can expect, it will make it easier for me to actually overcome that fear when I'm actually in the restaurant rather than waiting last minute where the waiter comes and asks, what do you want to order? But you in show in this state of analysis paralysis that you're like, it's all too overwhelming. Okay, I'll just not eat anything. And I'm like, which is then better having planned it out first or Going, getting into the state of analysis paralysis, which is actually just you being just in in heightened state of anxiety, and then defaulting to your eating disorder. So <laughs> that's another trait. And then I think I'll name one more is like with regards to eating, like food in a certain way, like arranging food in a certain way, or eating with certain utensils or bowls or kind of stuff. Again, this is a very tricky one because. I think anyone with an eating disorder knows they're very specific about eating with the small spoon and eating with the small plate because then your food appears as more, right? All the hacks you learn from diet culture. But I think, again, this comes circles back to that sense of predictability and trust. Because for an autistic person, if their food is like arranged in a certain way, for example, it's all mixed up, it can be very, very overwhelming because they are unable to kind of get a visual, autistic people are usually very, very visual. We're unable to kind of comprehend what's in front of us. And when we don't have an overview of like what's going on, that itself can be very overwhelming, put us back into that state of fight, flight, or freeze mode, which can actually make it feel literally impossible to eat. Because when you are in your in your sympathetic nervous system, like, your body shuts off digestion. So of course it's impossible. It feels impossible to eat. So then when it comes to arranging your food in a certain way and eating with certain utensils and bowls and stuff, this can be very, very helpful for autistic people because that consistency of like having the same bowl, I'm sure you know, like eating with different utensils can be a totally different experience if you're eating with like a dessert spoon or like a giant soup spoon like the experience of eating can be very different so for an autistic person it's very important that they know what they can expect from the eating experience especially if eating is still such a difficult task that you really want to do everything you can to build as much trust into the eating experience. So if the autistic individual can trust like, oh, at least the spoon is going to be the same, or at least the bowl is going to be the same, or at least I can expect the napkin to feel the same, well, then that's going to make the eating much easier. Whereas if you're going to say, nope, you have to eat this slice of cake and you have to eat it with a new fork and you have to eat it with a new napkin and you have to eat it with a new plate, So much is unknown that it's like, okay, I have zero trust in this. Now I'm just not going to do it. And yeah, that's why I do think that trust is really, really at the core of eating disorder recovery, but for autistic people, like exponentially so.
0: Wow. This is also fascinating. And I'm going to ask you for a few more traits, but can you list them instead of go and expand maybe? Because I I feel like there are so many and I just want to make sure people listening who might be autistic, get a sense of what this looks like.
1: Absolutely. I'm actually just pulling up my notes because I actually got a new idea for a book the other day of like that I was going to write like every single trait I could think of and then like how you could use it to your advantage in recovery. I'm like, that would be such an epic book for autistic people. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I mentioned attaching numbers to food arranging food in a certain way yeah so for me it manifests as like color coordinating my food and like no foods could be touching eating with certain utensils plates bowls planning your meals like when going out to restaurants but this of course you have to be careful because this is a huge one with just eating photos without the autism as well eating the same foods every day again you have to be really careful i'm not even going to say it at this point anymore because with all of them you have to know where it's coming from which we'll get into in a moment another one is adding lots of spices or seasoning to food or preferring really dry bland foods and this has to do with like sensory preferences whether someone is hypersensitive or hyposensitive or yeah they're not feeling hungry a lot of times people are like you're just saying that secretly you are very hungry but you're just saying you're not but it was like no like i actually am not hungry and when i learned about the science behind interoception i'm like See guys, I wasn't lying. <laughs> you could have <laughs> trusted me. <laughs> Procrastinating meal mealtimes. So delaying food is a huge one because for us autistic individuals, we constantly have so many thoughts going through our head that we're constantly in that like fight, flight, freeze mode that we can delay food, not only because we may don't feel hungry and we just are like, whoa, how has this much time gone by? Because our body doesn't signal to us, but also because we're just so anxious and we want to like check off all the boxes and make sure everything is sorted because we don't trust that we didn't forget something right that we delay food until finally we can relax temperature of food that food has to be either very piping hot like my coffee I cannot drink coffee that's like even the slightest bit cooled down I microwave my food so many times because it has to be hot in treatment this was called again an eating disorder behavior but now I'm like nope, I like my food really hot or really cold. There's like no in between and I 100%, 1000% certainty can say that is me and my preferences cuz I've always been that way. Also just feeling full is really hard, so for me like never allowing myself to feel like overly full was a really big issue for me. Like now it's not at all like I feel stuffed like a lot of the time and I'm like, "Okay, this too shall pass." But I think Like, if you think about fullness, again, fullness is a very sensory experience. And for people who are very, very sensitive, this can feel like debilitatingly uncomfortable. So I think that's another one, like not allowing yourself to feel full, not wanting to outgrow clothes. And then it's like not wanting to gain weight, but not not wanting to gain weight because you don't actually want to. Okay, how am I phrasing this? I had like a huge fear of weight gain, not because of the weight gain itself, but because I didn't want to have to buy new clothes. I didn't want to have to buy new things. And that has to do, again, with the autistic creative difficulty with change. Like, I just wanted everything to stay the same. So I wasn't afraid of, like, gaining fat on my body. I was like, no, but that means, like, I have to go shopping. And I hate shopping. It's super overstimulating. So it was avoiding other things. And then again, like, they were like, you're just afraid of weight gain. But it was like, no, I'm not. Like, if I could wave a magic wand right now and be like x pounds have you and have all new clothes and it would all be sorted out for me please like wave the magic wand like I always told them that but they're like they would just psychoanalyze it and be like nope you're wrong like I think that's again a huge problem with traditional treatment is they just tell you what they think or they make so many assumptions and yeah I think with regards to tailoring I think especially for autistic people in recovery and building that trust, you have to like listen to your client or your patient or the individual or however you want to call it. So yeah. And then lastly, the last trait that I will name is wanting to eat alone, like having a really difficult time eating in front of other people. And this is because again, being around other people comes with like a lot of like these social skills that we struggle with. So like we may feel pressure to make eye contact or behave in a certain way. And this puts us into that like anxious state, which actually can make it harder to eat. So yeah, those are, I think that was like, I don't even know how many that was, (laughs) but those are some traits.
0: Thank (laughs) you so much. And I think the next question I have to follow up is also a bit of a doozy because we just had you share so much, but you know, how do you go about navigating this then? You are autistic, (laughs) and have an eating disorder, how can you start to distinguish, okay, this is actually an eating disorder behavior or thought versus this is one of my autistic traits?
1: Yes, that is an excellent question. I do actually have a podcast episode called eating disorder behavior or autistic trait, how to tell the difference. <laughs> so anyone can listen to that on my podcast, the Live Label Free podcast, if they're interested. But what it really comes down to, and I just want to do kind of like a disclaimer here that like this takes time. Like you're eating disorder, took time to develop it's going to take time for you to learn new skills and implement those new skills and really distinguish like oh this is an autistic trait and oh this is an eating disorder behavior and like I've gotten very good at it and like I don't think I ever mix them up anymore just because I have been practicing this for so many years so I just want to like start it off by saying like if you are really struggling with this in the beginning of your recovery journey, like to give yourself grace. Because when we beat ourselves up for things that we can't yet do, it just causes us to feel discouraged and not want to move forward. But I would say that my answer to that question of how to tell whether it's an autistic trait or eating disorder behavior, it really comes down to one word. And that one word is intention. And then it's about whether you're coming from a place of love and understanding for yourself, or whether you're coming from a place of fear and limitation. So I often say if you're coming from a place of love and compassion and understanding for yourself and your needs, it's usually an autistic trait. But if you are coming from a place of fear and restriction and limitation, it's usually coming from your eating disorder. So for example, with the calorie counting example I gave before, if you're saying I need to count calories to make sure that I don't go over this amount because if I go over this amount, then this might happen and then I might gain weight. And then if I gain weight, my eating disorder will no longer be valid. Like it's totally just spiraling into fear, right? And limitation. Whereas if you said, oh, I can count calories and I'm actually going to use calorie counting to my advantage and say, I need to eat a minimum amount of calories at these times or this much per day because... I'm using this autistic trait of wanting to attach like food to numbers. I can use that to my advantage in recovery, but I'm I'm no longer coming from a place of restriction. In fact, I'm using it to actually eat more and make eating easier for me. And then you're coming from a place of understanding and compassion for yourself because you're like, I know I need to nourish my body and I know I need to eat more and I need to fuel more. And if setting a minimum amount of calories is going to help me to achieve that, at least in the short term, because I mean, I don't count calories anymore. But I know that in my own recovery, that was actually super helpful. So yeah, so as you can see, like, same behavior, totally different intention behind it. And that's why I always say, like, it's about learning to distinguish whether coming from place of love or from place of fear. That's how I I would say that's how you can tell the difference. I
0: love that. I've actually used that answer for that question, but applied to neurotypical people just saying like, how do I know if this is an eating disorder? Behavior right. Or not?
1: right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I think another thing I just thought of, like when it comes to like eating disorder recovery for autistic people is to let go of this belief. And again, it's not like, oh, let go of the belief. Poof, it's gone. I mean, this is why I coach people and have courses on this is to shift your mindset to to come from a place instead of saying, oh, like these autistic traits are making it more difficult. They're making me more complex. They're going to make it harder to recover from an eating disorder. To shift that to how can I use these traits? And I mean, we just talked about that. How can I use these traits to my advantage in recovery? Because when you stop fighting something that is just a part of you, it frees up so much energy to actually focus on what really matters. And that's recovery from your eating disorder, not Trying to get rid of your (laughs) autisticness. So I
0: love that reframe. It's just so helpful to have people sort of embrace who they are instead of try to suppress that. And I love that. So helpful. You did a great job with the calorie counting example, but were there any behaviors that you had with your eating disorder that you were using autism as an excuse to hold on to?
1: I'm trying to think just because my autism like discovery came like when I was like really, really like well into my recovery, if that makes sense. So that's why, yeah, because I was already 20 at the point when I discovered I was autistic and I had like, I was in a really, really good place in recovery starting when I was already 18. But I like, I definitely understand the question. So I'm trying to think of like examples of
0: one from like a client you have, if any, if it's not yourself, but just because I oh, think yeah, I, mean, yeah. I, can, I can picture people listening to this who maybe are autistic saying like, oh, well, I do all of this because it's my autism. But deep down, it might be their eating disorder, like they're defending the eating disorder and using the autism yeah. label as a
1: shield. Yes. No, no. When you mentioned about like maybe a client, I just had a ton of examples like <laughs> pop-up into my head, but now I'm like having a hard time like grabbing one because now like, there's like so many floating through my head. One that I can think of is like, Related to like interoception and like that state of analysis paralysis, like saying like grocery shopping can be really difficult for autistic individuals because there's so many options at the stores, especially in the US. I'm like, compared to Europe, like the Netherlands where I'm from, it's like a joke. But anyways, this idea of like, oh, when we say like we can try one new yogurt flavor, something else just to like bring more variety into their life. They'll say, like, oh well, I can't do that. I can't try the new flavor because when I go to the grocery store and I'm standing in front of all of the yogurts, I go into analysis paralysis, so I can't do it. I can't choose the new yogurt. But I think that's one of those things that I'm like, that's definitely eating disorder because you can like plan in advance before you go to the grocery store, like exactly which new flavor, exactly which new higher fat percentage you're gonna pick. Like that was one I've been still working on with the client. It's like buying higher fat percentage like more nutrient dense foods and that's often an excuse like no every time i go to the grocery store i go into analysis paralysis and then i walk out with the same yogurt i always buy but then you really have to plan in the beginning of like make that choice in advance so that all you have to do at the grocery store is execute and no longer think because if you just have to execute then there's no chance for analysis to paralysis to even get in there. So I hope that answers your question.
0: Yeah, it totally answers my okay. question. Thank you. Awesome. I think that was a really good example because I always know eating disorders are sneaky and they will yes. do what they can to stick around. Definitely. Um, What's the most difficult part of recovery? Or, you know, what would you say is probably the most challenging part for people who are autistic in recovery if there is like, something that feels the most difficult i know it's different for everyone but what's a big challenge
1: honestly i think like again i have one word for i think that's trust trusting the recovery process because and i think this is really at the basis of why so many people stay stuck in their eating disorder for such a long time is they don't trust that the hunger is ever going to stop they don't trust that the weight gains ever going to stop they don't trust that they have a set point, you know, like all these things, they're just different. They're the anomaly. They're the magical unicorn for the recovery is not going to work. And I mean, earlier in this conversation, I think I already touched on this topic of trust that autistic people have all these rigid routines and structures and everything in place because we don't trust a world that is so unpredictable. So, I mean, if you eating disorder recovery onto that, of course, that distrust is going to manifest into this as well. I mean, how can it not? And especially when you have been gaslit and invalidated by the professionals, you're too sensitive or this preference of yours, this desire of yours, nope, it's an eating disorder behavior. You're just making this up to give your eating disorder more room. Like you've been conditioned basically like not all professionals, of course, because I don't want to stigmatize because there are some amazing professionals out there. I just personally did not have the best experience, <laughs> is that I was conditioned like that I was wrong and my feelings were incorrect and I was a liar and I made things up just so that I could keep my sort of Like these are all things that were told to me. So of course, like I totally distrusted them because I'm like, You're basically telling me you can't trust me. So why should I trust you? And that creates that tension. That creates that manipulative situation, the rebellion, because they were basically saying like, I'm the professional here. I know what's best for you. But I was like, clearly you don't. Otherwise, I'd be better by now. (laughs) So I think that is definitely the most difficult part. But I'd honestly say that's the most difficult part of recovery for anyone is trusting the process. Because if you think about it, just as darkness is the absence of light, trust is simply the absence of knowledge. And the only reason we have such a hard time trusting the outcome of recovery is because we have zero knowledge of what that outcome is. And the only way to discover that outcome, the only way to gain that trust is to move towards the outcome you want, at least towards the possibility of that outcome, because you're never going to know what it's like to live without an eating disorder if you don't 100% commit to recovery from your eating disorder. So yeah, that's what I have to say to that. (laughs)
0: Yes, I love that. And it's so inspiring. And I love how that can be applied to anybody going through recovery too. It's really powerful to think about it in that way. So well, Liv, I cannot believe we have reached the end of our time together. It went by so quick. <laughs> I know. This has been so special and I'm so grateful to have you on the show. I know there will be many people who have their eyes opened after listening to you. So I'm so happy that they can connect with your work. And on that note, is there anything you'd like to promote before we say goodbye today. I know you mentioned a few things, but how can the community find you?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean everything that I mentioned so far and that I'll mention in a moment is can be just found on my website, livelabelfree.com. So that's live L-I-V labelfree.com they can find me on instagram at live label free yeah and then i have my own podcast too live label free the podcast and then there are a couple of resources that i mentioned earlier but i just want to let them know specifically that they can find those because i think especially my Audio training will be really helpful for autistic people listening to this. So, I have an audio training on my website called Three Steps to Recovery from an Eating Disorder as an Autistic Person. (laughs) I actually do dive into this how to use your well, the training actually guides you through the three steps where they'll learn how to use their autism to their advantage in recovery. And I mentioned that before. And then, I also, of course, have one on one coaching, I have my course, and my book is coming out soon, which is pretty much about my entire story growing up as an undiagnosed autistic person you know the manipulative rebellious me going through treatment anything and everything I've ever shared about autism and eating disorders and my personal journey and how I got through it and how I came out and became live label free it's all in that book and they can get on the waitlist for that book just by going to my website too. It's pretty clear once you're on the website. So, I'll just do that instead of giving like 20 hundred different links. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I
0: think that will work out great. We will put whatever links you want in the show notes. Amazing. And I'm yeah, again really excited I hope people can connect to your work and check that out and thank you again for being here and I hope you have a fabulous rest of your day.
1: Thank you. Oh my gosh. It was a true pleasure speaking with you. And I'm so, so excited to, you know, be a voice that can advocate for this link that really needs more eyes, but less eye contact. So.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's so great. Yeah. And it's a topic that needs to be spoken very loudly about and openly. So you're a great person to do that. So thanks again.
1: Right. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Bye.